In this episode, we will be talking about a case that is absolutely unbelievable and how the system made grave errors in letting an incredibly dangerous man back on the streets. Not once, but multiple times. This man was Gary Addison Taylor, and if you've heard of him already, don't go anywhere. I have a lot of information on him that you might not have heard before. And if you've never heard of him, stay tuned, because his story is very interesting and very strange. Gary Addison Taylor began his career of assaulting women when he was just a teenager. At just 20, he was arrested after a series of random-type shootings and beating attacks on women. He was sent to a mental institution. He was let out on the streets again a few years later and went on to do increasingly more aggressive and violent attacks, not once, but twice. Four years after his first capture, he was on the loose from the mental clinic to attend night classes. And of course, he reoffended. When he was arrested again, it was for beating two women, a landlady and her daughter, with a machete. Just ten years later, he was released back into the world at large, and soon began committing further, more aggressive crimes and multiple murders. In the end, there were five confirmed murders, but he is suspected of committing at least 20. There were also 12 additional confirmed attempted murders and two confirmed rapes, as well as one confirmed sexual assault and one confirmed attempted assault. Welcome back to Cherry Avenue True Crime Podcast. Thank you for listening. It's been just over a year now, and I want to thank you loyal listeners and welcome you new listeners. If you would like to support the show, please tell a friend to spread the word, and maybe give us a good review wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also support the podcast at patreon.com slash Cherry Avenue True Crime. Today, we are going back to the great state of Michigan and to the city of which I was born, Detroit. Go Wings! By the time this episode airs, I will have recently seen my beloved Detroit Red Wings play live against the Anaheim Ducks. I am certain we won and played very well. Ha! I'm back. And we did. We tied it up right at the end of the game and won in overtime. So glad Stevie Y is back. Iserman is from my day of hockey and will always be my captain, and now our GM. We started this season out hot and have had our bumps, but I have every confidence we will get back to it with all of the rebuilding and restructuring that is happening. Okay, on to our true crime story. This is a true crime podcast. It is intended for mature audiences. This case includes coverage of murder, rape, and other assaults. Listener discretion is advised. At least a week before Christmas in Detroit, Michigan, 1956, an unknown gunman had been shooting seemingly randomly at people around the north suburban area of Detroit, starting in Royal Oak. Newspapers are reporting the shooter is using a 22, and police are looking to see who recently purchased a 22 rifle. By December 25th, Christmas Day, the shooter is being referred to as the Royal Oak Sniper after he shot and wounded a 14-year-old girl and shot at another woman. The girl, Cindy Estes, was shot in the back while walking with a friend. As of the day of Christmas, newspapers reported she was recovering from her back wound. 
Ten minutes after Cindy was shot, a woman was shot at twice at a bus stop at Woodward and 13 Mile. One of the shots went through her purse, and the other hit a tree nearby her. This was not Detroit, as it would become later. These areas of Detroit the sniper was operating in were desirable places to live. Women were not afraid to stand at a bus stop. This was 1956. They certainly never expected to be shot at. My parents, as children, and my grandparents, lived not too far away in close suburbs of Detroit as well, and it was a great place to grow up then. The Royal Oak Sniper, or the Phantom Sniper, as he was being called, was caught on February 7, 1957, after he went on a spree. He drove around and shot at women, homes, and cars. When he was arrested, he told police, I just had an urge to shoot at women. The spree before the arrest began with 19-year-old Shirley Elan being shot at in the shoulder while standing on her porch in Bloomfield Hills. She was not seriously wounded. The gunman then drove through Oakland County to Detroit. He shot at two women waiting at a bus stop, and the bullet went through the material of their coats, passed through, and did not hit their bodies. He shot at a station wagon. No one inside was hit. Another woman, 18, was shot at but not hit. Four homes reported shots through windows, and a young girl was hit as the bullet went through her living room window and grazed her cheek. Her picture was in the paper as she pointed to the bullet hole in her window. All police in the areas were searching for him when Royal Oak Patrolman Howard Lester and Joseph Linville spotted a car that fit the description. There was a car chase that led down side streets and alleyways. They cornered him in an alleyway and arrested Gary Addison Taylor, who was only 20 years old. They found a 22 caliber rifle in the car. Assistant Prosecutor William Lang said Taylor told him he was the phantom sniper. He also said he was a factory worker, and he appeared to be a mild-mannered, shy youth. While in custody, Taylor confessed to a long list of crimes. A detective reported that Taylor told him he had a girlfriend that he never wanted to hurt her, and he treated her like a queen. The detective asked him why he attacked women. Taylor told him, I have the urge to hurt since I was in third grade. I've had this bug in me since I was a child. It's a sex drive compulsion. He told them he got sexual satisfaction from shooting women. He said he further developed the urge to hurt women while he was in the Navy. He was discharged early for medical reasons, citing migraines. While he was in the service, he attacked and beat a girl badly with a heavy wrench. He said he also beat another woman in Tampa in the same way. He claimed to have also picked up women in Detroit and taken them to hotels and beat and robbed them there. While in custody, by February 9th, he was admitting to shooting as many as 16 people, mostly women, and attempting to rape a 15-year-old girl. His attorney said he was asking for a psychiatric examination as he quoted his client as saying, I'm sorry about all the trouble I caused. I'm very remorseful, but I have periodic spells when I do things I can't remember. I'm not responsible. His neighbors in what was described as fashionable suburban Southfield Township said that Gary Addison Taylor was a tall, clean-cut, polite young man who never did anything out of place. But then authorities learned that Taylor had been charged with assaulting a woman with intent to kill down in Florida, but was acquitted. More information about Florida came out later. 
It was Christmas Eve, 1954. I think we are seeing a pattern here. I would definitely say Christmas was an extra trigger for this guy. So it was Christmas Eve in St. Petersburg, Florida, and he was arrested for attacking a 39-year-old theater cashier with a wrench as she stepped from a bus. At his trial for this in 1955, authorities stated they believed Taylor was responsible for 16 attacks on women in that area in late 1954, and somehow he was acquitted. A detective in Florida advised the family that Taylor needed medical help. His father stated in 1957 that he tried to get Gary help, but Gary wouldn't go. The family moved back to Michigan from Florida after that trial. Then, of course, in 1957, he was arrested for the sniper attack. He had admitted to authorities in Detroit that when he was in the Navy, he and another sailor beat up a Massachusetts woman with a monkey wrench, but the crime was never reported to the police. Taylor was given a medical discharge from the Navy in May of 1954 after 11 months of service because of migraine headaches. A headline in the Detroit Free Press on February 10th read, Bullet Tests Prove Girl Hate. The subheadline read, Youth Still Balks at Seeing Mother. The article goes on to tell how the ballistic tests were conclusive and proved that Gary Addison Taylor was, in fact, the phantom sniper of Oakland County. Gary's father, Milo, stated that he had urged Gary to get psychiatric treatment after he had been acquitted of the assault with intent to kill in Florida. Milo Taylor owned a store in Royal Oak at the time of the interview. He said, Immediately after the trial, I asked Gary to get psychiatric care and had arranged for him to do so, but he refused. The family first lived in Howell, Michigan, where Gary was born. They eventually moved to St. Petersburg, Florida, where those attacks happened, and then moved back to the Detroit area. Gary's mother had stayed out of sight since the arrest and had not visited her son in jail as of February 10th, which was three days after he was arrested. Detective Chief Edward Lutz said Gary had not asked to see her. He was ultimately deemed certifiably mentally ill during a court hearing. A Dr. Abraham Tauber told the court that Taylor is so unreasonably hostile toward women This makes it very possible that he might very well kill a person, and probably a woman, if he were allowed free in the community. March 28, 1957, one day before his 21st birthday, Gary Addison Taylor was committed to the Ionia State Hospital for the Criminally Insane. In 1960, he was transferred to the Lafayette Clinic in Detroit for treatment. As part of his therapy, he was let out to attend classes in welding. I guess they didn't hear what Dr. Tauber said when he was first committed to the state hospital. Certainly someone somewhere thought differently than Tauber and believed Taylor could be rehabilitated. It was during the Christmas season, once again, when Taylor talked his way into a home of a former beauty queen, telling her he was an IRS agent, and then sexually attacked her and robbed her of $13. Then in January, he choked the female owner of an art import store into unconsciousness. It was three months after all this that he was arrested for attacking a rooming house owner and her daughter with a machete. The attack stopped when his machete blade broke and he fled. He was in custody and the papers went crazy with stories how the sniper had been back on the streets and no one knew. 
there was strong public demand to know why he was released in the first place. He was taken back to Iona, and there was an investigation on the practice of transferring outpatients without court hearings. Ten years later, in 1970, he was transferred again, but this time to the Forensic Psychiatric Center in Ypsilanti, Michigan. He was released from inpatient care in July of 1972 with the stipulation that he return regularly for treatment. Dr. Ames Roby, the center's director, believed he was no longer mentally ill and would be dangerous only if he failed to take his medication. Gary Addison Taylor was 36 in 1972. He was released as an outpatient and reported to the hospital weekly for at least a year. Then the visits were reduced to once a month and then every three months. During this time, he got married to someone he had reportedly known for almost 20 years, Helen Mueller. He got a job as a machinist. The couple bought a home in Onstead near Ann Arbor, around 30 miles from Ypsilanti. His first skipped appointment was October 1973. Somewhere around there or after, he and Helen moved to Seattle. In November, he was placed on unauthorized leave of absence, and the state police were notified. In Seattle, when Taylor would drink, he would tell his wife Helen about the bodies buried at the house that they used to have in Onstead, Michigan. When he was sober, he would tell her he was just joking and trying to scare her. In late November of 1974, Seattle police came knocking, and they questioned Taylor about a missing girl who had been a neighbor of theirs. This scared Helen, and she left him and moved in with her family in San Diego. Taylor went down to the police station, and he was informally interviewed. He was told to come back on Monday for further interviews, and asked if he would take a lie detector test. Taylor agreed and told the police that he would be there Monday for the test, but he skipped town before the appointment. The neighbor was a newlywed, 19-year-old Vonnie Struth. She had told her brother that a neighbor had come over the day before to see if she and her husband wanted a dog. Her brother was the one that told police about it, and they thought Taylor was worth checking out. There had been no sign of a struggle and no sign of a break-in. Vonnie's personal items were still in the home, items she would have taken with her if she planned on going anywhere. A check through NCIC did not show that Taylor was wanted for anything. It was felt that she must have at least recognized the person that had come to her home if she had indeed been abducted. Sadly, there had been a bulletin put out to look for Gary Addison Taylor, but it came out too late. It was supposed to be released on November 6, 1974, but due to some error, it was not sent out to law enforcement agencies until January 13, 1975. The urgent notice stated that Gary A. Taylor was to be immediately taken into custody if he was located. In Colorado, a nurse from Dearborn, Michigan, went missing on January 15th. Her body was found a month later. She was shot. Authorities wondered about Taylor for this murder. May 14, 1974, Gary Addison Taylor was seen leaving the Three Thieves Club, which was on the west side of Houston, with a cocktail waitress named Susan K. Jackson. Her body was found May 18th in a ditch along a side road, placed in a black trash bag, 
bound with a dog leash. She had not been seen between the time she left the club with Taylor and the time her body was found. Police found a strand of Susan's hair and some blood in the trunk of the car that Taylor had rented. Also, they recovered a 22 caliber rifle, garbage bags, cord, and a rope. Taylor was also connected to and then charged with four counts of aggravated sexual abuse of Houston women in March and April, attempted rape on March 11th, and with the rape of a 16-year-old girl on April 23rd. In Houston in March and April of 1975, there was a series of sexual assaults of female apartment managers. The attacker at first pretended to be interested in running an apartment unit. He was described as tall and good-looking and somewhat charming, but when he got them alone in an empty apartment, he changed. He had with him what was described as a nine-shot revolver. He did not rape them as he was unable to perform, so he then demanded oral sex from them. He shouted horrible things at them during the attacks, calling them a bitch and other things, with a very deep anger. He wore black gloves during all the attacks, so no fingerprints were found. Another attack took place inside the home of a pregnant 16-year-old housewife. She had been home alone with her baby. The attackers sexually assaulted her in her house and then ordered her to go with him back to his hotel room. Fearing for her baby's safety, she complied. He told her to bring the baby with her. He was not impotent this time. Unfortunately, he was able to rape this poor young girl. She was able to escape when the man fell asleep. She quietly crept out of the room with her baby and then called the police. She told detectives that he seemed drowsy. She thought he might be high on drugs. She said his clothes smelled of marijuana. Houston police went to the Ramada Inn, but Gary Addison Taylor was gone. He had, however, left enough behind to help them identify him. He had registered as Sarge Taylor and even put down his Michigan license plate number. This was traced back to Gary Addison Taylor. Now he was in the NCIC, and they were able to find out just who they were dealing with, and it wasn't good. The victims from the sexual attacks at the apartment complexes were able to identify him from his mugshots. Taylor was gone, though, and they still had to find him. A month after the attack on the 16-year-old girl at the Ramada Inn, an anonymous tip came in. The caller told them Taylor was working at a machine shop and where they could find him. He was arrested on May 20, 1975. While he was in custody, he confessed to the murders of four women, Debbie Henneman, Lee Fletcher, Vonnie Stuth, and Susan Jackson. Debbie and Lee, Taylor said, were women he picked up at a bar in Toledo, killed and buried in the yard of his house in Onstead, Michigan. Vonnie Stuth was the neighbor in Seattle, and Susan Jackson was the waitress in Houston. The confession details were passed on from Houston to Michigan and Washington authorities. Taylor had given them the details on where to find the bodies. Gary Taylor Addison tried to recant his confession after this. However, two bodies were dug up in the yard of his old house in Onstead. They were bound and wrapped in plastic bags. There was also a call from Washington. 
they told Houston authorities, we found her right where he said she was. They were referring to Vonnie Stooth. A search inside the Onstead home came up with one thing. In the basement, they found a small room that was believed to have been used as a soundproof torture chamber. Even after over a year, the investigators found remnants of blood and human tissue on the floor, ceiling, walls, and pipes. An autopsy was done on the two bodies at the University of Michigan Hospital in Ann Arbor. Both women were found to have died from gunshot wounds. The bodies were of Debbie Henneman, 23, and Lee Fletcher, 25, both of Toledo, Ohio. In Seattle, they went back over the former rented property that Gary Taylor and his wife had lived in. There were acres to the property, and it was slowly combed foot by foot. It was on May 26th, the remains of the body found near a creek was positively identified as Vonnie Stooth. She had died of a gunshot wound to the head. There was no way of telling if she had been sexually assaulted, as she appeared to be have been dead for at least six months. She was found fully clothed, though. Gary Addison Taylor admitted to authorities that he had picked up Susan Jackson in Houston at the nightclub and taken her back to his duplex. He told them that he had suffocated her. He also admitted to Vonnie Stooth and to the two women from Toledo found in the yard in Michigan. Psychiatrists who examined Taylor repeatedly for court proceedings during his nearly 15 years in mental institutions said his aggressions towards women were directed toward his mother, Eleanor. Taylor also expressed resentment of his father, Milo. Nothing further is found to explain why he felt this way about his parents. The only other quote from Gary that was shared, and may or may not shed light on this, was that he found that all women to be a, quote, source of weakening him and possibly all men. Could part of that mean he felt his mother weakened his father and that is where the resentment toward him came from? Because he most definitely was a girl-slash-woman hater. There definitely was more to the mother or female side of all of this because that was what was stressed the most by psychiatrists. Gary Addison Taylor's family life was one of financial comfortability. While growing up in Howell, Michigan, his father owned a successful men's store and made around 50000 a year, which in the later 40s and early 50s was a lot of money. Gary lived in Howell through his junior year in high school. His classmates remembered him as a being a physical fitness buff, playing the trumpet well and having a hot temper. Some neighbors had described him as clean-cut and polite, but some family acquaintances said he was a headstrong, spoiled brat. There was also talk of the Taylors moving to Florida because of some trouble Gary had gotten into with some other youths in Howell. He also was allegedly said to have beat up a science teacher who kept him after class one time. A Royal Oak detective said, Taylor never looked crazy and Taylor never acted crazy. He was sharp in every respect except for sex and women. And then he went way out. George Tedder, a detective who testified at a sanity hearing once for him, said, Gary Addison Taylor is one of the most dangerous persons 
that I ever came in contact with. A Houston homicide detective, Carol Stevenson, said something similar 18 years later. I feel like he is far and away the most dangerous person I've ever talked to in the 14 years I've been doing this work. In Ypsilanti, Dr. Roby defended his release of Taylor. It was not my feeling that I had gotten complete internal control over his sexual problems, he said. With many sex offenders, I'm not sure we ever do. He said he had no psychiatric evidence that Taylor was insane and could be held. He felt that he should never have been found guilty by reason of insanity in the first place, that he should have been found guilty and placed in prison, not a mental institution. Taylor was sent to trial in Washington since authorities had the best case there on him. In the end, at age 40, Gary Addison Taylor was sentenced to a 90-year minimum term. He's iced now for good, King County Assistant Prosecutor Philip Kayleen said. He is still incarcerated in Washington State Penitentiary as of this date of writing. Gary Addison Taylor might be eligible for parole if he lives to be 100. In 2036, Gary A. Taylor would be 100 years old. Please remember to subscribe so you don't miss any episodes. It's free. Thank you again for listening. I love doing this podcast, but if there wasn't anyone out there to share it with, there wouldn't be much point. As I've said, it's been just over a year, and I thank you. You are all the best. I spend weeks on research. I work a regular full-time job, so I have to fit the research in on nights and weekends, and I spend at least eight hours on the writing, sometimes more. And then about eight hours as well for the recording and editing part of it. It's a lot more than some would think, but I love it. Please tell a friend, share us on social media to spread the word. And please, all of you, stay safe out there. The citations for my sources, uh, were most of them were from Detroit Free Press from the 1956 issues to 1976. Lansing State Journal, Lansing, Michigan, 1976. Livingston County Daily Press and Argus, 1975. Pampa Daily News, Pampa, Texas, 1975. Daily News, New York, New York, 1975.